Welcome to the Kings and Queens podcast with your host, Johnny Langton. He was loathed by nearly all his people and odious to God. The words of an Anglo-Saxon chronicler describing William Rufus, the conqueror's son and successor as King of England. He was a chivalric warrior who quelled rebellions and defended his land with the efficacy of his father but who also defied tradition, societal grace, and dignity, with indifference and derision. The monks and barons whose piety was ridiculed and exploited would be the scribes, the very enemies, to shackle William Rufus to his damning reputation, rigidly moulded to the annals of history. This is William II. William was born in 1056 in Normandy. He was nicknamed Rufus because of his ruddy complexion. He had a red face, yellow hair, different coloured eyes, astonishing strength with a projecting belly. Rufus had a straightforward route to the crown. Remaining on good terms with his father was an advantage that eventually allowed him to become king. Rufus grew up with nine siblings. His elder brother, Robert Curtos, and his younger brother, Henry Beauclerk, would become his rivals. Robert had a difficult relationship with his father, William the Conqueror. He was nicknamed Curtos, meaning short stockings, openly by his father, due to his small stature. Sibling rivalry ensued from a young age, but in a rather degenerate medieval fashion. Legend has it the young Rufus and even younger Henry emptied a chamber pot, a medieval toilet, onto Robert's head. A fight erupted, which the conqueror had to break up himself as Robert rode away enraged. This, it would seem, was the end of Robert's tether. His subsequent siege of Rouen, where young Rufus stood with his father to defeat Robert, temporarily, was followed by frequent spates of rebellion and alliances with the conqueror's enemies. This permanently damaged his standing and diminished his inheritance. While Rufus received the crown of England, Robert Curtis was given the Duchy of Normandy. William Rufus was crowned William II on the 26th of September 1087. Within a year of his succession, over half of the country's most powerful barons were in an open revolt against the king. But why? Bishop Odo bemoaned of the impossible position of the barons. Inherited lands on both sides of the channel meant simultaneously obeying two embittered brothers and overlords. Heeding to one put the baron at natural odds with the other. Bishop Odo, who was recently released from prison for betraying the conqueror, almost immediately betrayed him again by allying with a man the conqueror refused to bequeath, Robert Curthos. The passing of the crown to the second youngest son instead of himself meant Robert had a legitimate claim with which to entice barons to his cause. Additionally, medieval institutions were rarely strong enough to ensure consistent, bloodless succession. 
military strength usually dictated. So it was. Bishop Odo and his allies suddenly fortified their castles, stocked them with provisions, and waited for the king's response. One of those castles was at Pevensey, the very place Odo had arrived with William to conquer England twenty years before. Rufus responded with offers of money and land to whoever decided to remain loyal. He then appealed to the people, promising the best law that had ever been in this land, as well as a tax cut. As Odo and his army were waiting for the prodigal son, Robert Curthos, to rouse the rebels, unleash his army, and take England, Rufus personally led the army and attacked Pevensey Castle. Robert never came. He never crossed the channel. The rebellion was soundly quashed and Odo was captured. The people never got their tax cut. Odo was not executed, but was stripped of his land and banished to Normandy. Robert de Mowbray, a prominent earl and defector, was also spared. This was a feature of William's mercy and pragmatism. He said, He who is your enemy now may be your useful friend another time. Robert de Mowbray would prove the king both right and wrong. Continuing rebellion would flare from time to time for the next seven years. Malcolm III of Scotland decided to test the young king, tear up the Treaty of Abernethy, signed by the Conqueror and himself in 1072, and besiege Newcastle and Durham on the borders of England in 1091, with the help of the Conqueror's old nemesis, Edgar Etheling. William Rufus and his army soon sent Malcolm and Edgar back to whence they came. Rufus, however, was cunning enough to leave a few powerful barons in his stead for Malcolm's inevitable return. One of them was Robert de Mowbray. De Mowbray paid Rufus for his loyalty by facing Malcolm's next siege at Annick, killing both the king and his heir. During the subsequent bitter war of succession, Rufus began an English tradition of becoming deeply involved in Scottish politics, hoping to have influence in the eventual successor. He did. Scotland was temporarily stable and remained England's vassal. In 1095, Robert de Mowbray sent a message to Rufus that he could never be comfortable and he could never be trusted. He plotted to put Stephen of Umali on the throne. However, his allies deserted him. A siege at Bamberg led to Robert de Mowbray's surrender. Again, his life was spared and was given life imprisonment. Rufus was not always this merciful. De Mowbray's co-conspirator, William of O, was not so lucky. He was blinded, and then castrated. Rufus's most dangerous adversary was soon to be very far away indeed. His brother, Robert Curtos, Duke of Normandy, answered the call of Pope Urban II to the Crusades to take back the Holy Land of Jerusalem for Christianity in 1096. Robert, however, needed money. Rufus gave him 6,600 pieces of silver, arriving in Rouen in 67 barrels. 
This was not a display of untainted generosity or brotherly love. In return, Robert effectively ceded Normandy to Rufus. Now Rufus was the outright successor of the Conqueror. While Robert was now out of sight and out of mind, the people of England were incensed after Rufus levied a tax worth a quarter of England's annual income in order to pay for Robert's crusade. The following accounts of Rufus were written by those who disapproved of him the most. William of Malmesbury, Edmare of Canterbury, and his father's chronicler, Orderic Vitalis. The Norman court changed from William's pious militarism to Rufus's striking modernity, luxury, and indulgence. Rufus filled his court with like-minded men, indulging in rich entertainment and conviviality. Rufus himself was a dandy, dressed always in the height of fashion, however outrageous. Court men had pointed shoes like scorpion tails, long shirts, tight tunics, and hair down their backs like harlots, much to the outrage of the monks and lords. Ever defiant in the face of fury of the lords and monks, Rufus was known to lighten moods with jokes, no matter how inappropriate the timing. At the table with his men, he gave loose to levity and to mirth, as the finest entertainment was imported to his vibrant court. It wasn't just in the fashion and luxury of the court which Rufus influenced, but also architecture. He was responsible for the building of Westminster Hall, and it still stands today as the oldest section of the Palace of Westminster. The cost of his lifestyle was never his worry. In fact, his shows of opulence and extravagance suggested his flaunting. One morning while putting on his boots, he asked his chamberlain how much they cost. To his horror, they cost just three shillings. He demanded the chamberlain brought replacements worth a mark of silver to be worthy of royal majesty. When Anselm, the archbishop, wouldn't distribute ashes to men with long hair on Ash Wednesday, Rufus and his courtmen refused to cut their hair. Vitalis says, effeminate vices of men the odious wretches who should have been food for the flames, shamefully abandoned themselves to the foulest sodomical practices. By medieval standards, this behaviour was most unorthodox. Any movements from binary gender roles were deeply unnatural. Rufus's closeness to one of his courtmen, Ranulf Flambard, and his apparent effeminate behaviour, coupled 
with his complete disinterest in gaining a wife and producing an heir, fanned the flames of rumour that he was a homosexual. Flambard was deeply unpopular amidst the lords, who saw him as a confiscator of the rich, caring for no one's hatred to please his master. The king died unmarried and with no acknowledged illegitimate children. The king's sexuality can never be confirmed. However, such ill feeling from monks and lords was heavily compounded by his derision and exploitation of the church. For all his kingly similarities with his father, such as in war and dealing with political enemies, his piousness was not one of them. His disdain and ill-treatment of the church during his 13-year reign acted almost like a prelude of what was to come in Tudor England. Rufus's ill-treatment manifested in the rapacious disregard for church property rights. In the early years, the relationship had every reason to bloom. The first archbishop of his reign was Lanfranc, his old Latin tutor and family friend who would defend the king against increasingly riled barons and by rallying the common people to support the conqueror's choice. He kept Rufus in line and acted as a fair moderator. Just like when the Archbishop of Rouen died, it dramatically changed the life of the young Duke in Normandy, the death of Lanfranc in 1089 did the same. But while the young Duke became desperately vulnerable upon the death of his archbishop. Upon Lanfranc's death, Rufus became untethered. He saw the church as nothing more than a money pot in which he could dip. Wanting money to fund his lavish lifestyle and wars abroad. Rufus did not appoint a new archbishop. Instead, he kept the position vacant, seized all the land and kept the money assigned to the post by the Pope. This was utterly scandalous. The scheme worked. Rufus made bags of money. In 1092 he proclaimed that as long as he lived no man would become archbishop. And he didn't stop there. He did the same to the bishops. As Bishop Pricks opened, he again seized their lands, failed to appoint successors, and kept the income for himself. Pressure from Europe during the Pope investiture crisis whereby there was a Pope and an anti-Pope, led to Rufus finally appointing a new Archbishop, a popular choice in Anselm. His almost immediate and incredibly brave accusation of Rufus's unnatural sexual proclivities gave a hint of how this relationship would go. Rufus is quoted as to have said, Yesterday I hated Anselm with great hatred. Today I hate him with yet greater hatred. And he can be certain that tomorrow, and thereafter, I shall hate him continually with even fiercer and more bitter hatred. Upon raising the levy for Robert's crusade, the barons were hit hard with a separate tax. He responded to fierce complaints with a flippant suggestion. Could they not rob their shrines of their saints? With continuing battles and undermining of the church, Anselm felt the need to go to Rome, to the Pope for guidance, over the church's eroding sovereignty in 1097. The moment Anselm left, in what would prove to be his last jab towards a church, 
Rufus seized his land and took the purse once more. In war, Rufus had a considerably different reputation. He was a warrior, trained in all the knightly arts. He was chivalric, fiercely loyal to his men, paying all ransoms to those who were captured, and was known to provide generous sums of money to those who served him. This was a feature in many of his successes, but most certainly not in others. These features of Rufus, even his most resentful chroniclers couldn't deny. However, he sometimes reacted without his father's tactical guile. He allowed his lords to raid deep into Wales, breaking delicate diplomatic ties laid by the conqueror. Towards the end of the 11th century, he was at a near permanent state of warfare with the northern princes of France. Having secured Normandy, he quickly regained Maine and began to look towards Aquitaine and Poitou. He was in a strong position. His appearances in England were becoming increasingly rare. However, during one of his visits in 1100, he decided to go hunting in the New Forest. The night before, he'd had a dream where he was being bled. A spurt of blood entered the sky and turned the day into darkness. Upon waking, he was so spooked that he ordered his servants not to leave his side for the rest of the night. While he was hesitant, he did eventually go hunting with his party the next day. The story of the fateful day is told by William of Malmesbury. The sun was now declining when the king, drawing his bow and letting fly an arrow, slightly wounded a stag which passed before him. The stag was still running and the king followed it a long time with his eyes, holding up his hand to keep off the power of the sun's rays. At this instant, one of his party, Walter Tyrrell, decided to kill another stag. Oh, gracious God. The arrow pierced the king's breast. On receiving the wound, the king uttered not a word. But breaking off the shaft of the arrow where it projected from his body, he fell and was dead. Walter immediately ran up, but as he found him senseless, he leapt upon his horse and escaped with the utmost speed. During the 13 years of Rufus's reign, most people looked to Robert as the clear rival to the throne. Perhaps they had forgotten a threat of his youngest brother. Henry was present on the hunting trip. Upon his brother's limp body hitting the forest floor, Henry galloped to Winchester Treasury to claim the crown before his brother Robert. We can never know the true intentions of Henry and Walter on that day. With even less regard than was shown to the conqueror upon his death, with Henry and Walter fleeing the scene, Rufus's corpse was left alone until it was picked up by a peasant, a charcoal burner, 
The king's body was placed on a cart and conveyed to the cathedral at Winchester. Blood dripped from the body all the way. Here, he was buried within the tower. Unbelievably, Rufus was the third family member to die in a hunting accident in the New Forest. His brother and his nephew suffered the same fate. The spot on which he died is commemorated with the Rufus Stone. The nearby pub is named after his killer, Sir Walter Tyrrell. His death was seen for centuries as God's punishment for a wicked, decadent lifestyle and for the robbing of the church. The tower under which he was buried at Winchester collapsed the following year. This was seen as no more than confirmation of God's condemnation of William II. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for Henry I. If you have a comment or question, please email in at the Kings and Queens podcast or follow us on Twitter at Kings Queens Pod and on Facebook at the Kings and Queens podcast. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>